sing. Before we go to the Lord in prayer, I'd love to just invite you to kind of close your eyes and, and listen to this psalm. This week, as I've been preparing for spiritual warfare, I've been meditating on Psalm 46. So here's the first, um, I mean, the last three verses of that psalm. It says, come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Using the words of that psalm, Martin Luther, the great reformer, penned the powerful hymn of a mighty fortress in our God. Verse 3 of that hymn reads this. It says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we come on the back end of last week with our understanding enlarged from your scripture about the realities of spiritual warfare. That as Luther penned, we live in a world with devils filled and they, they surely threaten to undo us. But God, I pray that from your word, from Nehemiah, that you would teach us how we are equipped in Christ, full of Christ, able to engage so that, as he wrote, your truth can triumph through us. Lord, I pray for your supernatural uh, understanding, for your spirit to speak, um, for our hearts to be soft, able to hear these incredible truths of Scripture about who we are in Christ. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, you guys can go ahead and have a seat. Hey, if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 4. So if you, if you weren't here last week, I'm going to do my best in about 10 minutes or less to kind of recap where we were. But today is, is week two in Nehemiah chapter four. And as I stated pretty clearly last week, Nehemiah chapter four is really about spiritual warfare. It's about the biblical idea of spiritual warfare. As Nehemiah and the people of God were busy uh, joining God in his work of rebuilding his city, which is Jerusalem, for his glory some stiff and fierce opposition meet them pretty quickly. In verses one through three of Nehemiah chapter four, Sanballat and Tobiah begin to heap on lies and accusations, all intending, right, to get into the minds of the people of God. That this was psychological warfare. These lies, these accusations, these taunts, these threats, were all trying to get into their head, trying to get them to believe that this task of rebuilding this wall is too great for them trying to get them to believe that they're too weak so they would just put down their tools, they would stop the work of God. This was psychological warfare. But as we saw last week, with prayer and with planning, Nehemiah successfully kind of led the people of God through wave one of this opposition. But they intensified. And in verse 10, this is, this is what we read. Look with me at Nehemiah 4, verse 10. It says, in Judah, it was said... The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. It says there's too much rubble. By ourselves, we are not able to rebuild this wall. And what's crazy about this text, so, so you see the cognitive mind shift that has happened in the people of God. In verse 10, they're saying, we can't do this. We're too weak. There's too much rubble. This task is too big for us. But what's crazy is that four verses before that, right? In verse 6, after they, they stand up against wave one, they said, hey, we built the wall. 
And they built the wall to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. And I I posed the question last week, what changed? Like what shifted from verse 6, where the people have a mind to work, to now in verse 10, where the people have a mind to quit? And what we saw last week is that they began to believe the lies. They began to come into agreement with what was being said about them, that they're too weak, that the the task is too big, that the rubble is too much. So here in verse 10, they begin to believe it, and they say, we can't do this. Church, as I said it pretty clearly last week, Satan and his spiritual forces of evil seek to do this very thing to the people of God every day, that they want to launch lies and accusations and threats, all intending to what? Get into your head. To try to convince you of something that is untrue about God, to try to convince you there's something untrue about yourself so that you will put down your tools, that you'll stop doing what God has called you to do, that you will no longer join him in his task of building his image on this earth as it is in heaven. It's all aimed at getting you to believe something that is not true. So we left it pretty discouraging last week. The people of God beginning to be rendered ineffective. But I want to kind of revisit this model. So so last week, we tried to just give a biblical theology of what spiritual warfare is. What is it in the scripture? And I want to revisit that model this week because we're actually going to use it to kind of of build on it. So we're we're recapping. If you've heard all this before, hear it again, okay? Don't check out. So here's, here's the model that we kind of laid out. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but God sits above everything. And in his wisdom, he created these heavenly places where there are spirit beings in his wisdom. And they are created, meaning they're not omnipresent. They're not omniscient. They're they're not all powerful, right? They are created in the heavenly places, angels for our good and Satan and his demons for our ill. But what I want to hone in on is the world. That's that's where we are, right? And I made the, the amazing joke that it is round. It's not flat, okay? That's where we live and move and have our being in in this world. But what's interesting to note according to Scripture is that the world lies in the power of whom? Satan. 1 John 5, verse 19 says that we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Paul calls him the God of this world that blinds the mind of unbelievers. Jesus calls him the ruler of this world. And on and on throughout the New Testament, we see that Satan is called the ruler or the God or the prince of this world. And we covered last week that the reason that's true, the reason that we can say Satan is the God of this world is because of sin. Sin. Sin at its core, y'all, is a rebellion against God and against his authority. That's what sin is. And guess what? You and I have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all rebelled against God and against his authority, which means that we're just like Satan and his demons. According to Jude 6, if you want to write that one down, Jude 6, that's what happened. Satan and the demons would not stay in their proper positions. They rebelled against God's authority and they were kicked out of heaven. They were fallen. So we are just like them. We have all sinned. And that sin, y'all, it gives Satan claim, legal claim over this world. But there is really, really good news. Because when God, our Father, who sits far above all ruler and all power and all authority, sent his son, Jesus Christ, you know who he sent? Someone that was sinless, right? So this is kind of where Christ is. Christ came to the world, but he's not a part of this world. He's not like us. He's perfect. We rebelled against God's authority. Christ never did. So Christ could authoritatively say this, hey, the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no claim on me. 
Right? He has claim on the world because of sin, but Jesus could confidently say, he has no claim on me. And y'all, that sinless Savior came here with a purpose. Do y'all know he didn't just drift to earth? Like he came here intentionally for a reason. Anybody remember what that reason was? To destroy the works of the devil. To march into enemy territory, which is this world, and to take back for his father what was rightfully his. To reclaim us who were once under the domain of darkness and then transform us into the power of his son, the kingdom of light. That's what our Savior did. The sinless Savior came to destroy the works of the devil. And what's unbelievable is Satan knew why, Satan, why Jesus had come. He was in the garden, right? Mention this. He was in the garden. He knew one day I should be looking out for this guy who's going to stomp my head. And he tried to do everything he could to resist and oppose Christ to the point where he, he killed him on the cross. He entered Judas's heart to kill Christ on the cross. And the very act that Satan assumed would thwart and oppose the glory of God, right, was the very act that actually put the glory of God on display for the whole world to see. That's what happened at the cross. Colossians chapter 2 says this, that Jesus, by dying on the cross, canceled that legal claim, that, that claim that Satan had of your sin. Christ canceled it on the cross. He set it aside. He nailed it to the cross. And in so doing, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to, to open shame by triumphing over them. All right, so this is kind of where I left you last week. So now the world tends to look like this. There are those who have been saved by grace through faith, who are recipients of the redemption that is found in Christ, no longer right under the dominion of Satan. And I'll come back to this slide so you can see a little bit longer. But Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from that domain of darkness. He has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. But there are those who Satan continues to blind. He wants to blind their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. He doesn't want to lose any more ground. He doesn't want to give any more ground to the Savior who is Christ. We blinds the minds of unbelievers. So this is where we live today, church. And just like Nehemiah and the Israelites, you have to understand that you and I have been invited into the work of God. That we, as the people of God, are invited into building his kingdom, right, on earth as it is in heaven to be his ambassadors with the gospel of Jesus being transforming, like transforming your life and then being proclaimed from your lips. We are to push back this darkness on this world and be the church. And while here engaged in this battle, I, I just concluded last week by saying you can expect spiritual warfare. If you are living for the glory of God, you are living for the purposes of God, you are living to build his image in your life, in your home, in this city, in this church, you will experience spiritual warfare. And it's going to be psychological, all aimed at rendering us ineffective for the rebuilding work of God. But there's good, good news. According to Nehemiah chapter 4, and what we're going to see in our text today is that we actually get to fight back. We get to fight back. So Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 10. It says, in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we're not able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And then at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. 
And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. And those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. And the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. We are separated on the wall far from one another. And in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Just meaning none of us changed. None of us left our position. And it concludes by saying, each kept his weapon at his right hand. What incredible leadership of Nehemiah. And what we have in our text, church, is, is lots of things, but I'm going to kind of reduce it to, to three principles. Three things that I see on how we can fight back against this spiritual warfare. And the first thing is found in verse 13. Okay, so go back with me to verse 13. The people of God are beginning to believe these lies. They're saying this work is too great for us. And what's the first thing that Nehemiah does? Actually, verse, yeah, yeah, verse 13. It says, in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and in open places, I stationed the people. The first thing that Nehemiah did was position the people. Position the people. He stationed them, but, but look where he stationed them in the lowest parts, and in the most open places. Now listen, I've never been in the military, but that seems a little odd, right? I've seen enough Mel Gibson movies to know that if you want to be effective in warfare, is, is that good strategy to run to the lowest position? Is that good strategy to low, run to the most open position? It doesn't seem like Nehemiah is following good military wisdom. He, he positions his people, right? Not in the high places, he positions his people not in the most concealed places. He goes to the lowest places and to the most open places. I'm going to unpack that for a second. But church, I just want to make the point for us that that is where we are positioned. Today, the modern day people of God, if you are in Christ, you're a believer in Christ, he has strategically posi positioned us in the lowest parts of what? The world. We're positioned here Sent here, strategically positioned by God to be in the world. Let me give you a couple of scriptures from Jesus' high priestly prayer. As he's praying right before he's betrayed, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus is praying, I don't want my people to be removed from the world. In fact, he goes on to pray, just as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Jesus didn't take us with him. Anybody ever wonder why? Like, why are we still here? Like, if you're a believer in Christ, like, like why doesn't he just take us with it? Why not come back? Church, it's because there's intent in it. He has strategically, what? Sent us. 
into this lowest part. He has sent us into these most open places. He has sent us into this world. And he prayed to the Father. He says, Father, I don't want you to take them out of the world. That's, that's opposed to what our purpose is. I don't want you to remove them. I just want you to keep them from the evil one. He has positioned us, church, in these lowest parts and in these open places. We're to be Christ's ambassadors. Every breath that you breathe is for his glory, to build his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And church, I just, I just feel like it's time. Can, can we just agree? It's just time for the people of God in 2023 to come out of hiding. It's time. I just feel like the, the psychological warfare of spiritual warfare that has occurred over the last, what, three to five years has just largely pushed us into high places, into concealed places. Like, it, it, like the fear almost has driven us out of our strategic position. Don't buy into that. We are positioned by our King of Kings, by our Lord of Lords to be in this world, not hiding from it. Church, it's just time to come out of hiding. Like, listen to these truths. You are the salt of the earth. Come and preserve the kingdom of God here on earth. You are the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. You are a lamp, not to be concealed. Everybody knows the song, Little Light of Mine, right? We're not to be concealed. We're to be a lamp, not to hide in fear, not to run from this prevailing culture of evil, but to stand on a lampstand so that everyone may see your good works and give glory and praise to your Father who is in heaven. Let me give you one more. Church, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy people for God's own possession, that you may be positioned in this world to proclaim the excellencies of him who have called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's 1 Peter chapter 2. Church, it's just time to come out of hiding. I just feel like this warfare has gotten into the church so deeply that we've left our position, we've left our station. We've got to get into this world and become the light that God's called us to be. But again, not in a way, right? Not in a way that calls attention to ourselves, right? In a way that calls attention to God. Not in a way that goes into the world screaming condemnation and judgment onto the world. But to come into the world just as he came into the world. And the way that he came into the world was not to be served, but to serve. The way that he came into the world was that though he was equal with God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself and took the form of a what? A servant. Church, we've got to put on the proverbial towel around our waist and get on our knees and begin to wash the feet of this world who, y'all, are marching with blinders on towards an eternity apart from Christ. We have got to get into this world. We have got to come out of hiding. We've got to position ourselves. But church, it, it, it's an open place. You want to live for Jesus right now in our culture, boldly proclaiming the light of Jesus Christ? That's vulnerable, is it not? Like this is an open place. You know why? Because your enemy, the devil, is prowling around this earth, roaring, seeking someone to devour. I don't know about you, but if there's a lion walking around, roaring, and you're just out in the open, is that not scary? I mean, it'd be pretty cool, you know? But kind of scary because it's vulnerable. And, and, and you know, I, I don't want to highlight this too much, but, but is it not true that he's been roaring, like, loudly? Like, can't you see the effects and the impacts of what he's attempting to do in our culture? Let me just give you a few of the things that I see. Over the last several years, the moral temptations for egregious sins that has totally dismantled pastors and those in spiritual leadership 
which has led the church to be totally discredited, breaking the kingdom of God, breaking, right, who we're supposed to be called to be. The pandemic of fear and an anxiety that has left every one of us as believers in Christ believing the worst about God, believing the worst about ourselves, which has rendered us ineffective in our position in this world. Let me give you one more. Man, just the, the potent lies that he has whispered within the walls of churches. Like, well, I'm not, I'm not, let's not go out there yet. Let's stay in here. Within the walls of churches, the gossip, the slander, the suspicion that has grown amongst one another that has led us as the body of Christ to like mow each other down with, with friendly fire instead of standing in our position in this world. Church, he's roaring. But I just want to offer you some hope because although... We are positioned in this world, in a very open, vulnerable world. He has positioned us in such a way that your victory is guaranteed. We can actually stand in this world as a Christ follower with confidence. Let me tell you the secret. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to leave that hanging, okay? The secret to that is standing in Christ. We just sang about it, in Christ alone. But the secret of guaranteed victory, y'all, is standing in in Christ, being positioned in Christ. Here's how I want to say it. Satan may wage psychological warfare on the church, but we get to wage positional warfare on him. All right, let me, let me show you from scripture what I mean. Where is Christ Jesus right now? Okay, according to scripture, it says, according to the working of God's great might, Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Let me give you another one. Mark chapter 16. So then the Lord Jesus, after he'd spoken to them, was taken up. He ascended into heaven. And where is he? We sat down at the right hand of the Father. Let me give you one more from Hebrews. After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So where is Jesus Christ right now? All right, let's reflect that in our model. He's seated at the right hand. Right? Far above all rule and authority and power. But listen to this. From his position at the right hand of the Father, he has sent us into this world, correct? He has sent us with a task, with a purpose. But here's the important part. He has actually positioned us far above this world. You tracking with me? All right, let me show you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 says, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him. And what? Seated us with him in the heavenly places. I need you to digest that truth for a second. We may be sent into this world, but we do not fight from a position of this world. We are actually far above this world as we stand in this position of Christ. So our model actually looks more like this. So instead of just sitting on this world, taking all the fiery darts because we have no power to do anything about it, no, believe where you are positioned. You are in Christ, meaning that you have the power to influence this world, not to be influenced by this world. But that can only happen if we believe this position that Christ has purchased for us. So church, we may fight down here on this earth, but we actually fight from up there with Christ that phrase, in Christ, or in the Lord, or in Him, is used 164 times in the New Testament. If you're new to the Scriptures, or if you're new to this whole Christianity thing, I just want to tell you, take the book of Ephesians this week, and read through the first three chapters and underline that, in Him, in Christ, in the Lord, okay? Great Bible study for you. But that phrase, in Christ, practically, 
What that means is that if, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that what is true of Christ is fully available and realized to you as you stand in him. Let me get more practical. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with some, no, with just a few, no, with every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Church, that means his grace, his sufficiency, his strength, his love, his mercy, his peace, his joy, his mind, his spirit, his power, his armor, all of that is available to those that are in Christ. So we may engage, church, in the slowest part, in the most open, vulnerable parts of this world, but we do it from a position that's in him. So we fight from our position. That's point number one. I could talk about that for 40 hours. But we fight from our position. I just want you to get that truth into your head. We are seated with him. Our victory is guaranteed. We fight from our position. But look back with me at verse 14. Nehemiah says, and then I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Here's point number two. We fight with our memory. We fight with our memory, okay? We fight from our position, but we also fight with our memory. The second thing Nehemiah does after he positions the people is said, remember God. Church, our faith is a faith of remembrance. All throughout scripture, we are commanded to remember who God is. Peter even viewed one of his primary apostolic responsibilities as stirring up the church by way of reminder. You want to be stirred up in your faith. We have got to practice this discipline of remembering. And as an oral culture, the people of Israel, the people of God in our text today would have taken seriously their responsibilities to pass down their understanding of God verbally, orally to generations. So when Nehemiah is surrounded by their enemies to the north, south, east, and west, and he looks at the people of God and says, remember your God, I bet it conjured up so many stories of the people of God. I thought of three. Okay, Exodus 14. People of Israel are escaping Egypt. Pharaoh and his chariots are surrounding them. And they begin to panic. And they actually tell Moses, were there not enough graves in Egypt for you to have brought us out in the wilderness to die? Moses looks at him in Exodus 14, 11 and says, fear not, stand firm. There's that position thing. Stand in your position and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be still. And we know how that story played out, right? We, we know that God worked a miraculous deliverance of his people that day. And the, the Red Sea came down upon their enemies. What Nehemiah is saying is, remember the God of Moses. Remember the God of the Exodus. He has delivered us before. He will and can do it again. That's what remembrance does. It builds faith in the character of God. Let me give you another one. 1 Samuel 17, one of our household favorites, David slaying Goliath, right? David looks at Goliath and says, today I will deliver you into my hand. I'm going to strike you down. I'm going to cut off your head. Why? We always stop there. We're like, man, David, that's a bad man there. That's not the point. David says, the reason I know God's going to deliver you today is so that the whole earth may know there is a God in Israel and that everyone may know the Lord saves not with sword and with spear for the battle is the Lord's. That's what David said. He's doing this for the image of God. He's rebuilding for the image of God. What Nehemiah is saying to the people of Israel is don't fear. Remember the God of David. He has delivered before. He can do it again. I'll give you one more. From 2 Chronicles 20, 
Jehoshaphat was surrounded by the enemies of Israel. The city of Jerusalem was being sieged. Jehoshaphat hits his knees and says, God, we do not know what to do. Our eyes are on you. And God, through a prophet, says, you will not even need to fight in this battle. Just stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. He created confusion in the enemy camp. They began to fight against each other. God had done it before. He can do it again. Nehemiah is calling the church to remember who God is. Church, we need to remember who he is. This is a discipline. I mean, in your quiet time, thinking about times where God has been God in your life, where God has been God in the lives of others, and as you begin to reflect on who he has been, it begins to build faith in your life for who he can be today. So when you begin to fear and these these accusations and these lies begin to bombard you, what you need to do in that moment is remember God. And I I could give you a thousand things to remember about our God, but can I give you just two today? I said last week that you have an accuser, right? If you're a Christian, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have an accuser. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. What that means is he wants to bring you before God and say, he and she, they're unworthy. They don't deserve you. They don't deserve your salvation. They're unworthy. Look at their sin. He wants to highlight your sin. So again, you believe that you're unworthy of God's love. You have an accuser. It's true. But let me remind you, church, you have an advocate. You, you have an advocate. First John chapter 2 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you would not sin. But if you do, if anyone sins, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus, before he departs his disciples, says, It's better that I get out of here. Because if I do, I'll send you another. I'll send you an advocate, the Holy Spirit, who will remind you of all these truths. So what is an advocate? Picture a court of law, Right? Satan, the accuser, is your prosecuting attorney. He brings you on trial and he begins to accuse and accuse and accuse. And all of a sudden you have an advocate, someone that's next to you, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, that begin to to defend you and say, no, 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 I paid that price. I took that sin. They're they're guilt-free. They're innocent before the Father. That's what an advocate does. So when he speaks up on your behalf, this is true for you. Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Because you have an advocate, you don't stand condemned. Romans 8 goes on to say, Who then can bring any charge against God's elect? It was God who justified. Because you're advocate, you're no longer condemned by these accusations. So you have an accuser church. I just want to remind you, you also have an advocate. Secondly, I told you last week, Satan is a liar, right? When he speaks... He speaks out of his own character. He is a liar and he is the father of lies. But can I just remind you, who is Jesus? The truth. There we go. The truth. John 14, 6 says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Church, he will never deceive you. He will never lie to you. And if you begin to abide in that truth, read John 13 through 17. You abide in his truth. He says, listen, you, know, you will know my truth and my truth will set you free. Those lies will try to enshackle you. They will try to shame you. They will try to sideline you. They will try to arrest you. And he said, but if you know me, if you stand in me, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So again, I could give you a myriad of things to remember about God, but just because his fiery darts are accusations and his fiery darts are lies, I want you to remember you have an advocate and you have the truth. Well, let's look at one more principle. Verse 14 again. Nehemiah has positioned the people He tells them to remember the Lord. 
And then he says, fight. I want you to fight. Go to verse 16 with me. He says, from that day on, after he's positioned, after he's reminded them of who God is, and after he commands them to fight, he says, from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. And those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. Here's principle number three. Fight with your sword. Like, don't, don't you just love the imagery there? Can you picture them in this story? Like, working with one hand but holding their sword into the other? That's the image I want us to have as the people of God. That we go about this rebuilding work of God in our lives and in our families and in this community, but we're also simultaneously aware that this guerrilla warfare could happen at any moment. Right, that these attacks, these lies, these accusations, these temptations to sin could happen at any moment. So we build with one hand and we hold our sword into the other hand. What a beautiful image of a people committed to the glory of God. But it begs the question, right? What's our weapon? What is the weapon that God has given us? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. As Paul is laying out all the armor that he has given us for the spiritual battle, he says this in verse 17. And take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Our sword that Christ has given us to resist the devil and to submit to God is the sword of the Spirit, is the word of God. But what's incredibly interesting about this phrase, word of God, is that throughout the New Testament, the phrase word of God is usually translated one or two ways in the Greek. The first is logos, right? John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. That's usually the Greek word logos, and that's the revealed word of God. So what John is saying is you want to know who God is? Look to Jesus, because Jesus is the revealed word of God. But there's another Greek word for word of God that means that, that is rhema or rima. Rima means verbally spoken word of God. It's God's word spoken. I, said, I just felt like that just kind of went over. Don't miss what Paul is saying here. What Paul is telling us is that if you take up your sword, that means to wield it effectively, you need to speak it out of your mouth. You have got to verbally share out loud. Satan can't hear your thoughts. He, he they can't. Like You need to know that. You need to speak out loud the word of God. That is how we wield our sword effectively. We need to wield it just like our, our example did in the wilderness. Jesus, when he came under the frontal assault of Satan in the wilderness, Jesus wielded the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Let me just take you back there. If you're familiar with your scriptures, this story takes place in Luke chapter 4, where the Spirit of God drove Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days, okay? But what, what I need to say first is before we look at these temptations, there's actually something pretty significant that happened in Luke chapter 3. Okay? Luke chapter 3, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. Right? He comes up out of the water, the heavens opened up, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove onto Jesus, and, and they hear a voice. Anybody remember what that voice said? This is my son. This is my son. A couple verses later. Holy Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. Anybody remember what the first words Satan spoke to Jesus? 
if you're the son of God. Don't, don't miss that. If you're really the son of God. He immediately began to attack and sow doubt into the identity of Christ. Oh my goodness, is that hitting home for any of you? If you were really a Christian, if you were really a child of God, if you really fill in the blank, he tries to sow doubt into your identity so you stand firm in your position. Stand in that position. No, no, I am in Christ. That didn't deal with Jesus. So he knows I can't get him to doubt his identity. Let me try to, let me try to appeal to the lust of the flesh. That's what Satan appealed to. So Jesus, 40 days, hungry. You should take these stones and turn them into bread. Jesus effectively wielded the sword of the spirit and spoke out loud, man shall not live by bread alone. That's a direct quote from Deuteronomy chapter eight. Satan moves on, begins to appeal to the lust, uh, the lust of the eyes, takes him up high and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, they're mine, but I'll give them to you. I know that's why you came. You came to take them back. I will give you the kingdoms of this world. Shortcut. You don't even need to go to the cross. You don't need to suffer. I will give them to you. Just bow down and worship me. Jesus effectively wields the sword of the spirit, speaks out loud. You shall worship and serve the Lord your God alone. Direct quote, Deuteronomy chapter six. So he moves on to the pride of life. Satan takes him up to high pinnacle of the temple, says you're special. God loves you more than everybody else. Throw yourself off the temple. He'll command his angels to pick you up. You'll be fine. Show everybody how superior you are, appealing to the pride of life. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Don't you put the Lord your God to the test. Wielding the sword of the Spirit. Direct quote. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Church, we have got to resist the enemy with the spoken word of God just the way that Jesus did. But here's the deal. If you don't know it, you can't use it. Scripture memory is just a discipline that we have like totally lost as a society, right? I think it's because we believe that we'll always have it available on us in the form of smartphones. Although, I did not plan to say this, but although I read an article this week of ChatGPT rewriting portions of Scripture to make them more inclusive, okay? So you may want to go ahead and start hiding some of this, just hiding it into your heart. I, I, that. May have to cut that out of the recording, okay? But that's something I feel. You may want to start hiding this in your heart. But if you don't know it, church, you're not, you're, you're not going to be able to use it. And, and listen, these enemies of Nehemiah, this is guerrilla warfare, right? They're, they're sneaking attack. They're, they're not going to say, hey, you know what? Four o'clock tomorrow, I'm going to bring some lies to you. You know what? Three o'clock tomorrow when that woman walks by, I'm going to get you with a temptation. But none of that. He's not going to tell you what's coming. It's going to be a surprise attack, and you are not going to want to pull out your phone and begin to try to find some scripture in that moment. I can promise you you're not. Can we all agree that in that moment you are so weak, you're so vulnerable, you're not going to be able to withstand that? But if you have hidden it in your heart so that you might not sin against God, you will be able to wield it effectively just like Jesus did. So let me give you a couple of examples of what that could look like. That bout of loneliness begins to come. Satan begins to whisper, you're all alone. God doesn't hear you. God doesn't care about you. Nobody's going to help you. You can immediately go, hang on now. The Lord is my shepherd. And even though I walk through the valleys of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because he is with me. And his rod and his staff, they comfort me. Get out of here, Satan. Speak it out loud and it will dissipate. Let me give you another. He begins to accuse you of your sin. You begin, that, that unworthiness to be God's child begins to wash over you. Instead of coming into agreement with you, you can go, hang on now. 
The word of God says that there is no condemnation for me when I am in Christ Jesus. In my flesh, I am condemned, but he died my penalty for me. I'm no longer condemned. Be gone. Romans 8 verse 1. When that temptation begins to pull you like an invisible magnetic shield, right? You know that temptation begins to pull you. You begin to think. You begin to start slipping away, and you begin to think, you know what? One image online, that won't do any harm. You'll know how that sounds. It just want just one little thing. That's not going to do any issue. You can go, hang on now. No temptation has overtaken me except for what is common to man. And God is faithful. He promises to leave me a way of escape so that I can, choose, I can just choose that. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You can wield that sword out loud, and that temptation will flee from you. Church, we've been given a sword. But, but if you don't know it, it's going to be really, really hard to use it. So I just want to encourage you. Labor. Build God's image in your life. Be more fully conformed to the image of his son. Disciple your children. Worship as a family. Share the gospel with your coworkers and in this community. Do that with one hand. But keep your sword in the other, okay? Because when you join God in his work of rebuilding, it, it's, there's going to be spiritual warfare. But you can be successful. I'm just going to land the plane. You can be successful when you fight from your position in him. You fight with your memory of him. And you fight with the sword of his word. And just like Nehemiah and the people of God, as we'll continue to see in the book of Nehemiah, we'll just go about laboring. We're going to come out of hiding. We're just going to go about laboring and building God's kingdom. So that's the end of Nehemiah chapter 4. Why don't you all stand up with me this morning? I'll pray for us, and then our team will lead us through a time of response. Heavenly Father, we're so incredibly grateful for the truths of your word. We recognize, God, from your word, from a survey of your word, that spiritual warfare is, is a reality. Whether in our humanistic tendencies that, that only trusts in science, that only trusts in reason, that only trusts in what we can touch and what we can taste and what we can smell, the truth of your word still prevails. Whether we feel it, whether we see it or not, there is a, a cosmic battle that is taking place. And we know how it's going to end. We know that one day, Christ, you will return and you'll throw that serpent into the abyss forever. We know. But until then, God, I pray that you would help us take up our position as your body, as a reflection of your image to communicate to this world the goodness of our God. But I know, Lord, that as we do, as we stand firm in that position, as we take this, this strategic position seriously, that there's going to be warfare. But thank you, Jesus, that you have given us all that we need that pertains to life and to godliness. And that we can stand in that position, that we can remember who you are, and that we can fight with this sword, which is the word of God out of our lips. We need your grace, God. We need your mercy. We can't do this in our own strength. And as, as Nehemiah wrote in this text, our God fought for us. May you continue to fight for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.